Greetings and welcome to the latest episode of Si Yo Fuera Una Canción, If I Were a Song. We are a community-based podcast and radio show in which people of Santa Ana, California, tell us in their own words about the music that means the most to them. I'm Elizabeth Le Guin, your program host and director of this project. The project is based on my conviction that we people in the modern urban world need to learn to listen to one another, and that music and all it brings us is the perfect place to begin. My name is David Castaneda, music researcher here for the Si Yo Fuera Una Cancion podcast. I'm so happy to be a part of this project, using my scholarly training and my performance experience to bring you the stories, music, and lived experiences of those living right here in Santa Ana. I met Laura Pantoja when I first started coming to events at El Centro Cultural de México. For a long time, she intimidated me. She was the lady who sat in all the important meetings, arms crossed over her chest and an ironic smile on her lips. She seemed to know much more than I did about everything. Years have gone by, and Laura no longer intimidates me. Her warm heart has made itself known to me, even as I have retained a healthy respect for her sharp intellect and for her critical judgment. In today's interview, we get a glimpse of where all that got started, and we talk a little bit about where it might be headed, too. Welcome, Laura. It's a great honor to have you here on the line recording an interview. After over a year of this podcast, I finally get to interview you, and I'm very excited. I'd like you to introduce yourself to the audience, to the listeners. Tell them a bit about yourself, like your full name, your profession, what you do in life, whatever you feel is important to tell us about what you do in life. How did you come here? How did you come to be here in Santana? Things like that, if you will. Well, hi, Elizabeth. It's a pleasure for me as well to be on your program, your podcast, which I love. My name is Laura Pantoja. I'm from Mexico, from Mexico City. I'm about to turn 61 years old, and I've been living in Santa Ana, California for over 25 years, and I'm a community organizer. I've been doing that for many years. I started very young back in Mexico. And that's what I do. And I came, how did I end up in Santa Ana? Well, I always tell my girlfriends that someone put a curse on me on the airplane when I came to California to visit my siblings because I ended up staying, right? <laughs> I was just coming for a vacation, like thousands of migrants, nothing more. We come here for a while and we end up staying here. I went to live in a city called Orange. I was there for about 10 years. And after that, I came here to Santa Ana. But almost all my work, or actually all of my work, has always been here in Santa Ana. It's always been, I don't know why, but in the center of Santa Ana, in the downtown, as they call it. I've always, always worked in that area. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And what type of work is there for a professional organizer? <laughs> I'm not sure if there is an organizer profession. <laughs> I think so. There should be a university of organizers, I think. that <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like a bachelor's of organizing. Yes. So when I was really young in Mexico, I grew up in Mexico City. I remember that when I started high school, I went to a school called the Colegio, the School of Sciences and Humanities. And on the first day of classes, some kids who'd been rejected by the university came. Uh, the Colegio was part of UNAM the Autonomous University of Mexico. So they came and they hadn't gotten in. There were a lot of them, 50 or 60 young people who wanted to register. And to me, it seemed like an injustice. 
I was like 15 years old. And that day they went out to protest and talk with the people. And I don't know why, but I went with them. Mm -hmm. I think that was where I started to get involved with things that were happening around me, you know, in the community. And so I was in Mexico for many years. I also worked on creating a cooperative in a place called Cholula in Puebla, Mexico. Mm -hmm. I learned there, I, I have to laugh at myself. I remember, well, I was very young, about 19 years old, and I showed up with all the arrogance of youth, thinking I was going to organize the campesinos, the local peasants. But it was the other way around. The campesinos wound up organizing me. <laughs> of course, of course. So I've had a really good schooling, a great schooling. I've had many experiences of working with the people, which are the same as my people. When I was working in that community in Cholula, well, I said to myself, this family could be my dad, my mom, my aunts and uncles, right? Because my family comes from the countryside. My grandfather and great-grandfather were hitatarios, that is, co-owners of communal lands. And so they were campesinos. Unfortunately, my aunts and uncles had to immigrate to the United States because of the poor economy. And my grandfather's land wasn't enough to maintain them. And that's how people came to the city and disappeared from agricultural communities, right? Yeah. So I felt very comfortable with the people because I felt like I was with my family. It was never hard for me. And when I came to the United States, well, there was a newspaper published by an organization. The organization was called Hermandad Mexicana, Mexican Brotherhood. They ran a free newspaper in Spanish called La Unión Hispana. And I went and I said to myself, hey, why don't you help them out? So I started helping them and I worked there for a while, writing articles and reporting. And that was how I went about joining the community and getting to know people and understand a bit more about how things worked in Santa Ana and what it meant to be a migrant in the United States, you know? What the laws were that criminalized the youth and migrant families for not having documents, right? So I became an organizer to serve the community. And it's the community that teaches me everything that must be done. Yeah. Yeah. So community organizing is really your true calling, but not necessarily just how you pay the rent. I'll tell you, I worked a long time for the newspaper, and then I worked at the consulate. <laughs> I worked for many years at the Mexican consulate until they fired me. <laughs> I'll never forget it. It was an injustice like all layoffs. Oh dear, oh dear. And then I, st then I started working for an organization called Latino Health Access that hired community health workers, people that live in the community and are also experts on the issues that happen there. And I'm working there now in the community outreach and advo advocacy department. Mm, mm -hmm. But I always say that something that marked me for life, and it's the reason I've been here so long, was being a volunteer at an organization called El Centro Cultural de México. Of course. <laughs> of course. I think we've all been touched by that organization in some way. And I think that this space is so important to me because it gives me a sense of belonging. And that's really important for all human beings. So because of that, I belong to the community of Santa Ana because I began getting involved in cultural activities. And from there, things emerged that had to do with our lives, right? The lives of migrants. And as they say at the Centro, culture is political too, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. When we began making posadas or the Noche de Altares, these things were a political act, right? Mm. Going out and singing and pidiendo posada in the street, well, that's practically revolutionary, you could say. 
Well, yes. Of course, El Centro Cultural de México has been sort of a recurring theme in these interviews because I met a lot of our interviewees through the Centro, just like you and me, right? I met you through the Centro. And I very much agree that the feeling of belonging is fundamental for any human being. And funnily, in my case, as I don't have any Latinx heritage at all, and Spanish is my second language, I found the same sense of belonging, of comfort and an integrity between the cultural and the political at the Centro, which, well, was in fact the reason I moved to Santa Ana. So yeah, a little promo for the Centro. As I mentioned in the interview, the Centro Cultural de México has been a touchstone for many of my interviewees, as well as for me personally. Some time back in episode number three, when I interviewed Luis Sarmiento, I presented El Centro as a fundamental community resource for many Spanish-speaking residents of Santana. Like many small nonprofits, El Centro was hit hard by the pandemic. Nevertheless, it has continued to offer economic help to undocumented residents of the area, vaccine clinics, and for a time, a place to pitch a tent in its parking lots for unhoused people who had no other options. It is to be hoped that in coming months, El Centro can reopen its doors to the community anew to once again offer its rich range of cultural programs and classes. Among these, the best known has been the Noche de Altares, Altars Night, that Laura mentions. This event takes place around the 2nd of November, Day of the Dead, when families and organizations in the area build altars to their dead throughout the whole center of the city. These altars are a moving testimony to the memories of lost loved ones, as well as to the creative richness of Mexican traditional arts. Laura also mentions pidiendo posada, or asking for shelter. This is an old Christmas time ritual in which a group walks through the streets singing and carrying a decorated tree branch. At the end, they arrive at a house or a church where a second group awaits them, and a song interchange ensues that recreates the search for shelter in which the Virgin Mary could give birth. Finally, the second group admits the first, and everyone has a party with punch and traditional treats. Laura comments that in Santa Ana a generation ago, doing something like this was almost revolutionary, for the way it brought dramatic ritual to the streets of a suburban community. Even now, it has radical resonances, for those same suburban streets are now inhabited by the many unhoused people who spend their days literally asking for shelter. Let's move on to the songs you've chosen for the interview. And this time, it's a little bit different than past interviews, because we have three songs, two of which represent various aspects of your origins or your roots. Okay. Uh, my mom is from, she was from the state of Jalisco, and my mom always liked to sing. She wasn't bad at it. She could hold a tune, and she always sang to us. But I don't know why, but we always make mental associations. She sang a song by Tito Guizar called En el Rancho Grande. That is, on the big ranch. Over where I lived, there was a rancher lady who happily told me, I'm going to make you your underwear, like the ranchers wear. I'll start with wool and I'll finish them with leather. And she always sang that to us since we were very little. So my mom comes to mind, I guess, because she liked Tito Guizar, who acted in movies, right? He has a song called Over on the Big Ranch and a lot of movies. I think they were movies my mom watched when she was young. And the song's... My mom really loved to sing that song, and I always associate it with my childhood because my mom wasn't an urban woman. 
<laughs> she was a rural woman. But since we grew up in Mexico City, we'd listen to the radio in the mornings before school. We'd turn on the radio, you know. We had a television, but in those days we listened more to the radio. And Cricri's show was on in the morning, so the kids would get up and sing the songs. And I remember, well, the song La Petita, The Little Duck. I associate that one with my mom a lot because it goes, The little duck goes to market with her polka dot shawl. She comes back home and her ducklings say to her, What did you bring me, Mama? Quack, quack. What did you bring me? Quata, quack, quack. <laughs> well, that's what we were like when our mom would come home from the store. What did you bring me? Right? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Let's... <laughs> Let's let's go to the song by Tito Guizar. Mid-20th century Mexico seems to have had an endless supply of impossibly handsome male actor-singers with impossibly gorgeous voices. Pedro Infante, Pedro Vargas, Javier Solis, Jorge Negrete, Pepe Guizar. Tito Guizar was first cousin to Pepe. His given name was Federico. He took the nickname Tito in honor of his beloved voice teacher, the Italian operatic tenor, Tito Schipa. And he had a modest operatic career in addition to becoming a film star and popular singer. His classical training gave him what may be the most beautifully modulated and controlled voice in a very strong field of contenders. What a great way to start the day. Right? My mom really liked that. That song reminds me a lot of her. <laughs> of course, of course. And something I learned while preparing for this interview is that there are many recordings of this song, of course, by various famous artists, Tito Guisar among them. But each one is a little different. There's a ton of verses for mm -hmm. the song. Yes. And the artists choose their own verses to they create, in each case, a slightly different variation of the song. I would imagine that your mom did the same thing, like choosing the verses that were most fitting for the moment. Yes, that's why I told you about that verse. I'm going to make you your underwear. That I remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's something to it that grabbed my attention as a girl, you know. I imagine that clothing worn by cowboys, people that rode on horseback. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and yeah, and being a city girl, imagining a bit of country life, a village life, so we could we could say that song was doing a bit of intercultural work, no? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting, that phenomenon of migration from the country to Mexico City, like a, almost like a whirlwind of migration. So, so many were arriving at that time. Yes. In that era, when there, were, when there was a lot of work in Mexico, in Mexico City, a lot of people immigrated to the big cities in search of opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. The family histories that Laura shares are anecdotal evidence of a grand historical movement that is very important in Mexican history. In the 1950s and 60s, the metropolitan zone of Mexico City, which is the term that includes not only Mexico City proper, but also Mexico State and all contiguous communities, saw the greatest annual rate of internal immigration in its long history. This was precisely the period in which Laura's parents arrived there from Jalisco. In that period, 
the population of the zone effectively doubled, and more, from some 3 million people to almost 7 million. As Laura says, the most common reason for the flight from the provinces was economic. Over time, capitalism in Mexico has had a disastrous effect on country and small town life. Internal migration in Mexico has never stopped. According to the 2020 census, the metropolitan zone of Mexico City today consists of some 22 million human souls. Funnily, my mom and dad are from nearby places, but they met in Mexico City. And they even had friends in common back home. <laughs> when they got married, my mom said that people laughed at her for the way she talked. For, exa for example, those bread rolls that are called bolillos in Mexico City in the streets of Jalisco are called birotes, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> my mom arrived, she would give me birotes. And everyone made a face like, what? <laughs> what is that? <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. So those things, you know, speaking of coincidences, or my mom was a migrant in Mexico City, and so was my dad. And we are, my brother and I, who live in the United States, we're migrants in this country. And so I spoke about my mom. I said how tough it had been for her being a migrant in Mexico City. And I remember that my mom was just waiting for the day for classes to finish. And the next day we'd go to her village to spend the summer. Mm. It was really lovely because there was water and canals and fields. It was a place where as a child you could wander. We were city kids. Uh, my mom wouldn't let us go out, you know, but in my mom's village I could go anywhere because everyone knew me and they'd invite us to eat. So I remember that during our vacations, I'd never even see our mom and dad until it was time to go to bed. <laughs> it was yeah. really great, right? It was very fun. Yeah. All the kids at ease all day long exploring mm -hmm. the area in perfect safety, right? Right. Yeah, <laughs> it's like paradise, kind of paradise. Yeah. And you know, I've really liked to read ever since. I started reading very young. I'd read anything I could get my hands on. And I remember that in the village there was... I don't remember whose house it was, but I like to go to this one house because in the small towns, they have this custom of leaving the doors and windows open. And you've seen those corridors, right? With flower pots full of ferns and plants and all fresh green. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was my aunt or a distant cousin. But under her bed, she had a wooden box with all the um, those drugstore type novels or little comic books called Lagrimas y Risas. Or Tears and Laughter. They they told the stories that later got made into telenovelas, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> For example, Oyuki Sin. But anyway, she had the whole collection, so I'd spend part of my vacation getting up to date with everything in her collection. Yeah, yeah. Oh, how fun. That's wonderful. I, I remember in my childhood in the state of Oregon, well... Every week when we'd go to the market, we were allowed to pick out a comic or something like that to read for the whole week. I loved, I, I loved that. And that encourages you to love reading, right? I always say that's where I got my reading vice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> vice. Yeah, it's a great vice to have, right? Lágrimas, risas y amor. Tears, laughter, and love. Was a historieta, which is to say a comic book of long life and wide cultural influence in Mexico. 
It was published for 32 years between 1962 and 1994. It offered episodic stories about dramatic and sentimental themes, with sketches in sepia. Various were turned into telenovelas. The series that Laura mentions, El Pecado de Oyuki, Oyuki's Sin, became one of the most successful sequences in the history of the magazine, and it was converted into a telenovela in 1988. I emphasize this popular medium here for the reasons that Laura expresses. For various generations that are now mature people, this taste for these humble magazines, they have no literary prestige at all, led us to become serious readers for our entire lives. That's how it was for Laura. That's how it has been for me. In my English-speaking case, the historietas were, that is, comics, were those of Marvel Comics, with fantastic and romantic stories about heroes and, from time to time, a heroine. Well, okay, so moving on to the second of your two first songs. Uh, so, the figure of Krikri. In a certain sense, he's a comic figure, but in truth, he was a man that sang and had, as I understand it, a radio show. Tell us a bit about how you got to know his music and the role it played in your childhood. Okay. I liked it a lot, especially because, well, like you'd wake up to Krikri's songs, right? But Krikri's songs were also like stories. Yeah. First, his character is the singing cricket, and his program had a theme song that went like this. Who's that over there? It's Krikri. Krikri, the singing cricket. And you knew the program was starting. So he'd tell you the story, the song about three little pigs or the duck that, little duck that goes to market or the ugly doll or uh, the one about the grandmother. So there were, there are stories, you know. But I think the good thing for those of us who listen to Krikri his name was Gabilondo Soler, and he was a musician, right? He knew about music, so he'd teach you real rhythms. His songs have the rhythms of cha-cha-cha, of jazz, of the blues. I feel like he gave you a certain musical education, like a sense of rhythm and of taste, right? Mm -hmm. So he contributed a lot. If you have the opportunity to listen closely to Cri-Cri, you'll find all those rhythms from Veracruz, from the north. El Raton Banquero, right? Do you know it? The cowboy mouse, mm. the story that he got out his pistols. Imagine a child, you know, you're listening to the songs, but well, you're imagining the stories. I would picture the duck with her shawl, but I'd also associate it with my mom arriving home from market and us asking her, what did you bring me? What did you bring me? <laughs> you know, <laughs> we'd ask my mom that. So I think he contributed a lot to musical taste and the upbringing of generations. Mothers in Mexico still play Krikri for their children. Mm-hmm. And there are other singers now, right? But Krikri is practically a Mexican icon. Well, it seems also to me that besides contributing to the appreciation of music, of regional musics and everything else, I think there's an element in various songs of his, there's this element of social critique. And that surprised me, like, a lot. I'm going to suggest that we listen to the song now, because this song has like a, a twist ending. It has an unexpected twist at the end, and it, it made me laugh until I cried. So let's listen to La Patita. La Patita, 
de canasta y con rebozo de bolita va al mercado a comprar todas las cosas del mandado se va meneando al caminar como los barcos en alta mar la patita so here's a translation at the end of that song her ducklings are growing and they don't have shoes and her husband is a lazy, shameless duck who doesn't earn anything so they can eat. And the little duck, well, what's she going to do? So when they ask her, she'll answer, eat flies. Quack, quack, quack. <laughs> <laughs> I understand that this is not an isolated example in Kriki's repertoire. I, I think that as a social critique, he was thinking, for example, that everything at the market is very expensive. I think that mothers identified with that. Yeah, with that, And with having so many children, but there's nothing to feed them today. Well, so eat flies. <laughs> Same with the song about the ugly doll, right? It talks a bit about being different, about respecting our differences. It's a good point, eh? <laughs> Someone should write a thesis. <laughs> <laughs> This guy, you know, there actually are doctoral theses about him. Wow. Uh, I found a couple and a couple of, like, undergraduate theses about him. So he has gotten academic and scholarly attention, and most of it is in the last 20 years. I think there's been a kind of a turnaround in how scholars regard things like children's art and children's music. They're starting to get the respect they deserve as as literature and as real music, real art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think Krikri is a, just a wonderful kind of poster child for this, for, for why we should take children's art and children's music really seriously. As I understand it, he, he himself had some doubt about going into this as a career. He, he was a musician, a pianist, a singer, a composer, and... He got involved with the radio, the early days of national radio in Mexico. And somebody there suggested to him, hey, you know, we're trying to find a host for this children's show. And he was none too sure Mm -hmm. because back in that day, uh, children's art really got no respect at all. Right. Uh, But he, he went for it. And I think pretty quickly he got a sense of what the possibilities were here. Real artistic possibilities and real possibilities of making complex and subtle and delightful communications mm-hmm. that really matter in the world. And and uh, Laura points this out, you know, she says it's, it's what we hear when we're really young, it's what we hear in our family, you know, that's gonna be with us for the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are, 215 songs wow. by by Gabilondo Soler, Cri Cri. So a lot to choose from here, but we've got this this one that she that she brought forward for us. Um, what do you notice there, David? The quality of the music is just so high. You know, it's just the musicianship is there. These this is a live orchestra. This is a full orchestra. I mean, playing, really playing. You know, this is it's just fantastic music. There's no two ways about it. Yeah. Yeah, and then the the singing and the patter and the way he brings the characters in. This was radio. It was primarily radio coming into people's houses on the Krikri program at mm-hmm. 7.15 every morning. Wow. 
I don't know. Did you did you grow up listening to radio shows or, or for that matter, television, which is probably more in tune with with your generation? When my dad, who he was born in '57 in Guatemala, he would then kind of share with me, "Oh, well, have you seen Tom and Jerry? Oh, have you seen you know this such and such show, which had music like this." what we would call old school cartoons that I, you know, as a musician now, I really, really appreciate and I really enjoy uh, for the reasons that we're saying, you know, their, their artistic quality, the caliber uh, mm-hmm. of art that was being shared with people was just so high. Yeah. I don't even know what cartoons they got going on now, SpongeBob. Uh, <laughs> it just doesn't, it doesn't have the same, uh, it's not the same. Yeah. Something that is really artistically put together. I think kids really do respond to it differently and perhaps more profoundly. The thing that really grabbed me with La Patita is the ending. He was not afraid to go there and be really pretty satirical in his songs for children, which is something I think satire is a great teacher, right? Yep. Teaches, you know, values, uh, everything in a nice little package, plus it's funny. Mm -hmm. And um, Laura briefly mentions El Raton Vaquero, the cowboy mouse which is another Krikri song, uh, very well known. I think it's kind of iconic. The story of the cowboy mouse is that he's a U.S. American. He is the stereotype of the macho cowboy, except he's a mouse. (laughs) And he's in a Mexican jail. And he's very upset about this. And he keeps shooting off his pistols and talking in English to his jailers and saying, let me out. I don't belong in here. And his jailers are like, Mm-mm, you you earned your way in here. You're in, in here to stay. Sorry, oh, no. guy. <laughs> <laughs> what the heck is this house for a manly cowboy mouse? I want you let me out and don't catch me like a trout. Con que si, ya se ve que no estás a gusto allí. Y aunque hables inglés, no te dejaré salir. just such an amazing little satirical sketch of it's like international relations in a children's song mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. American machismo and the Mexicans just like Mm-mm, you screwed up you're in jail why was he in jail <laughs> it never says ah, even better okay all right <laughs> that's right well All right. If if not a thesis, it's worth thinking about a bit. Because the act of awakening the social conscience is something that begins with the family, right? A sense of fairness. That's the motor for activism and the motor for, well, the work of community organizing that you do, for example. It's something very worthwhile to think about, I think. How can musicians and those who work in children's music, how can they help children to develop a social conscience, a, a conscience about what's fair and the rights they really have? It has a lot to do with values, right? Or a bit about the values, but more the actions of the parents, right? Mm, that's it, yeah. One thing is what, what they tell you, and another thing is what people actually do in their lives. And when you're a child, you pay a lot of attention to that. So you also have to see how your parents act around people in need or in moments of injustice, right? 
Yeah, it's true. So it's like you're unconsciously taking notes of the things that aren't shared fairly in the world, right? I remember Dia de los Reyes in Mexico very well. I lived on a working class street, but there were people who were teachers, government officials, you know, and there were people with fewer resources. And I remember that holiday well. Well, some kids would go out with their brand new cars or bikes, their big dolls, but there were a lot of kids that didn't have anything. There was someone with a big bag of marbles, and that bag of marbles was enough because they had something new, a new toy. But yes, there were kids that just watched the others, and to me that was awful. I remember it well. Mm-hmm. It seemed unfair to me. So there's a good reason for a kid to hear talk in the house that parents talk about injustices. These things start very young in life, I think. Mm-hmm. And okay, the question is, how do we bring that forward? What type of life can we build with respect to injustices, the, the, the things we observe, right? Yes. What we hear, what we see, what we read, it's all part of it. We're a product of all that, right? That's mm, true. Well, that's a good turning point for us to shift our attention to the third song, the one you chose that expresses or represents your hopes for the future. And it's a super interesting selection. I think I'd like to listen to the song you chose by Silvio Rodriguez, La Masa, and then we'll discuss it. Si no creyera en la locura de la garganta del sinsonte Si no creyera que en el monte se esconde el trino y la pavura Si no creyera en la balanza, en la razón del equilibrio si no creyera en el... This song always makes me cry <laughs> Of course, yeah, it's powerful I really like it for its substance and its values It's like a philosophical song, right? Super philosophical. The meaning of life, what keeps you going, or what? what's the reason? I think it's a lot <laughs> like life. <laughs> well, it's a lot. It's a lot like life because the whole song is organized around a question that never gets answered. Just like <laughs> life. For me, it's a pure song. It reminds me of things I believed and keep believing, you know? That, mm. That's what maintains me and keeps me going doing the things I like. Well, to me, it's a sign of a certain, let's say, spiritual maturity to have this list of values, of things to believe in in life, but just in the form of a question. And he never answers it. The whole song is in the subjunctive, and he never answers his own question, and he won't answer. And it's, that's like the principle of hope, like, like, the foundation of hope in life to me. It, it seems really, really deep because it isn't easy to base your faith to keep going in life on uncertainty. <laughs> of course. Well, that's how life is, right? Uncertain. Well, that's right. But the act of learning how to trust in that uncertainty, it's its lifelong mm. learning, right? We're, we're constantly messing that up, or at least I mess it up. <laughs> we all get discouraged and lose our way. Yep. We feel alone in the universe. These lyrics, these songs, every time I listen to them, they make me cry, but they make me feel happy. It's a contradiction, right? Well, the thing is, we have company on the path. Silvio Rodriguez himself keeps us company on this path that at times can be very difficult. 
With company, everything is possible. It's less difficult, right? Sure, because you're you, right? With your own contradictions and your own conversations, your silences and everything else. That's why that's why the sense of belonging and, and making a community is something that maintains you, right? A lot of that comes from the spaces we've helped to create. You too, Elizabeth. Surely at the Centro in Son Jarocho, in what you do at your school, right? Mm-hmm. It keeps us alive and, and with the hope that makes our eyes shine, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's something to always be grateful for. That support the universe sent us to be here today and to keep on creating. I don't know who's supporting us, but it's got to be someone out there in the universe, right? <laughs> what a great way to put it. Yeah. And, okay, going back to the song for just a bit, one thing that really gets my attention and it really grabs my heart is not only the lyrics, but also the music that Silvio Rodriguez uses. The music itself in its own way speaks to this because, okay, it uses a harmonic loop, a, a series of chords in the song that never closes. It repeats and it repeats and it repeats, but it never rests. And so the, the notes, the, the tones themselves are expressing this sense of searching, you could say. And, and, and of power, no? I, hmm. I mean, the intensity is growing, right? That what would, what would, what would it be? <laughs> right? That's right. <laughs> and all that about the harmonies and everything, that's from the point of view of an expert, right? Well, yes, but I didn't mention it as a way of, you know, boasting about myself, about my knowledge. It's that, yeah, it catches my attention because those effects that singer-songwriters use in their music, they do affect us a lot. They affect us on a different level than the words. And the words, yes, we can talk about those lyrics a lot. But the, the music also contributes a very important element that's very powerful. Like when he plays, I don't know what instrument it is, a drum. He plays Boom, boom, boom. Like it's powerful, right? I really like that part. Yeah, me too. Okay, so here we have one of the perhaps one of the most well-known and studied artists of all, I'm gonna say all Latin America, Silvio Rodriguez, which is just such an icon if we're gonna talk about what I like to call pan-Latin American music. That's music that has gone from one place in Latin America and really has made an impact all over Latin America and the world. Uh, Silvio is one of them for sure. What do you think, Elizabeth? I was just gonna say, uh, so living here in Santana in a community that is, there are very few Cubanes here, uh, mostly Mexican, Central American immigrants. And yeah, Silvio is huge. Mm-hmm. He's huge. <laughs> so, yeah, that's kind of a case in point. Yeah. Silvio, for those who might be unfamiliar, has made a career and a name for himself doing what we call today uh, music called Nueva Trova. So Nueva Trova music is kind of an analog in some ways to American singer-songwriter music of like the 60s, right? Where the, the poetry and the lyrics were very much conscious. Lots of uh, social and political critique. This music... Nova Trova actually had has its roots in an older music called Trova music, which was music made by traveling musicians on the island of Cuba, beginning in the Oriente province, and they would go basically from town to town, but usually on a guitar, 
and singing these primarily love songs, but it started around the 60s after the revolution to become Nueva Trova as the lyrics became more politically and socially conscious. Well, you know what occurs to me, David, is so Trova, the word makes me think of the troubadours, Mm -hmm. which were a European phenomenon hundreds of years ago, the traveling musician who went from town to town, court to court, uh, sharing their art. And it just brings to mind something, I, I mentioned this briefly in Laura's interview, the, the harmonies of the song. It's a harmonic cycle mm-hmm. that goes over and over and over, and the whole song is based on it. Let's listen to it briefly here as, as it is heard in La Masa. So here goes. Que cosa fuera la masa sin cantar. Un amasijo hecho de cuerdas y tendones. Un revoltijo de carne con madera. Un instrumento sin mejores resplandores. Que lucecitas montadas parecen. Que cosa fuera corazón, que cosa fuera. And then I just want to play right next to it something else. de la Ninfa of Claudio Monteverdi from 1638. I think you can hear that, (laughs) that there is this commonality between these two songs, uh, roughly 400 years apart, and it it supports your your point about the the Nueva Trova. And it's so cool to see how, you know, these, these musical techniques and music in general just always is building upon itself. And it can happen in many different places across many different times, right? And it's, to me, it's a testament of, you know, humans being humans, humans listening to each other and being inspired by one another (laughs) across centuries. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, well, it's, I think it's a good choice, a very special choice you've made because it leaves open the question of where we're going. (laughs) And, and why? And what for? What we believe, right? That can be expressed in many ways. Like you said, and I'll tell you, almost every time I hear it, it really moves many things in my heart. It's like mm. what they say, that we're the product of the place we were born, of, of history, the economy, and, and maybe we're the product of music too, right? Mm. Part of a loving upbringing and all types of upbringing have to do with the music we got to hear and, and live with. Yes. And that's what this podcast is all about. <laughs> because music opens doors between people and between between hearts, right? Yes. Yes. It enriches our lives. Yeah. Well, this seems like a great point on which to close the interview because honestly, I don't know how to go on further from this philosophical but <laughs> lovely point that we've arrived at. <laughs> Thank you for all of this effort to tell stories through the music of the people around you. It's a great way to communicate to the world. I hope so. 
To me, well, I enjoy an enormous privilege of getting to hear the music of people I know, and in some cases, people who are new to me. And through that, I find a, a broader, deeper sense of an entire, very special community, which is this community of Santa Ana. So I'm very grateful for the opportunity, really. It's been a pleasure, truly. A great pleasure. Thank you. Would you like to know more? On our website at ciofuera.org, you can find lyrics to the songs we discuss, our blog about the issues of history, culture, and politics that come up around every song, links for listeners who might want to pursue a theme further, and some very cool imagery. You'll also find playlists of all the songs from all the interviews to date, and our special staff-curated playlist as well. We invite your comments or questions. Contact us at our website or participate in the Cio Fuera conversation on social media. We're out there on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And then there's just plain old word of mouth. If you like our show, do please tell your friends and your families to give it a listen. And do please subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll bring you a new interview every two weeks on Friday mornings. Julia Alanis, Cynthia Marcel de la Torre, and Wesley McClintock are our sound engineers. Zoe Broussard and Laura Diaz hold down the marketing. David Castaneda is music researcher. Deaneira Garcia and Alex Dolvan make production possible. We are a not-for-profit venture currently and gratefully funded by the John Paul Simon Guggenheim Foundation. For now, and until the next interview, keep listening to one another. I'm Elizabeth Le Guin, and this is Si Yo Fuera Una Canción, If I Were a Song. Si yo fuera una canción Sonarían por las calles, las montañas y los valles Mi orgullo y mi pasión ¿Quién soy yo de corazón? Soy una ola, soy una onda Una vibración que ronda por el universo vivo Y sonando soy testigo a nuestra unidad más honda 